If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Dave, Content Director for the History Extra podcast. I hope you don't mind this little interruption. We've welcomed a lot more listeners to our podcast over the past few months, and we're delighted and really grateful to have you on board. Thing is, we'd love it if a few more of you headed over to our website, historyextra.com, to check out some of our content there. We have thousands of features covering a wide variety of historical topics on the site, from ancient Rome, through medieval Europe, and right up to the 20th century. We've just released some exclusive podcasts onto the site too. These are recordings of lectures given at our 2019 History Weekends, and they include talks from Dan Jones on the Crusades, Yanina Ramirez on Medieval Wonder Women, Nicola Tallis on Margaret Beaufort, and Peter Caddick Adams on D-Day. Just head over to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts to have a listen. I hope you enjoy them. And I hope you carry on listening to this podcast too. Thanks again. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Seventy years ago this week, war erupted in the Korean Peninsula. The three-year conflict pitted communist North Korea, supported by China and the Soviet Union, against the capitalist South, which was supported by a UN force led by the United States. The UK was also a significant player in the UN army. And in today's podcast, we're going to be exploring how the Korean War played out in Britain. Our guest is Dr Grace Huxford a historian at the University of Bristol and the author of the 2018 book The Korean War in Britain, Citizenship, Selfhood and Forgetting. Grace has also written a piece for the July issue of BBC History magazine about the British aspect of the conflict. Putting the questions to her was our editor, Rob Attar. So we're going to be focusing today mainly on how the war played out back in Britain. But to begin with, I think it would be helpful to speak a little about the conflict itself. So When did the Korean War start and why? The Korean War started uh, officially on the 25th of June 1950. And that was when North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, invaded South Korea, the Republic of Korea. And that was on the back of uh, rising tensions between the two Koreas, which had been taking place for a number of years prior to, to the invasion. So Korea had been occupied by the Japanese from 1910. 
And at the end of the Second World War, when Japan was defeated, Korea was split in two um, under the stewardship of the Soviet Union in the north and the Americans in the south. And both forces withdrew by 1948 and two separate states had been formed, so two separate careers. And there was quite a lot of tension both within the states and repression within the states, but also between them. And some historians even, you know, say that some of this tension was building up before 1950 um, and that this was a, a civil war, essentially. But most historians would date it from the 25th of June 1950 when North Korea invaded South Korea. And the two had very different political systems. So the, the North was communist under Kim Il-sung, uh, the Kim dynasty that is still with us today. And the South was ostensibly a, a capitalist country um, under the leadership of Syngman Rhee. So there was tension between the two Koreas prior to the invasion, but um, that tension spilled over uh, in 1950. At what point does Britain become involved in, in the war effort? And was there ever any doubt that Britain would join in? So Britain becomes involved in the war effort fairly early, um, actually. So when uh, North Korea invades South Korea on the 25th of June 1950, a number of nations come to its aid, to South Korea's aid, through the body of this new organisation, the United Nations. And this is, I think it's uh, 21 nations come to support the UN effort to support South Korea. Lots of them don't necessarily send troops, um, but there's a, an amazing array of, of nations actually support uh, South Korea. So including Thailand, um, Ethiopia, Turkey, but Britain is one of the nations that sends military forces. And you can see this from the cabinet papers very, um, very early in July. They're discussing first sending naval support and then sending ground troops as well in support of the UN effort. Of course, the, the big partner in the UN effort is the United States. And some historians have argued that Britain is very keen to show its support, not necessarily to just the United Nations, but to the United States as well. Uh, don't forget that the United States is supporting post-war Europe and post-war Britain to some extent at, at the moment. But it's also a relationship that they want to cultivate. Britain wants to cultivate the special relationship. You talked about the, the US being the, the dominant player in, in this UN force, but what, what kind of size and scale is the British effort? We don't actually know the exact number that was sent to Korea. We know it's um, above 40,000. And um, if we were to include British and Commonwealth forces, it might be as high as 100,000. Because don't forget, a lot of Commonwealth forces such as um, ANZAC forces, Australians, um, are involved as well. So it could be as many as, as 100,000. But most estimates are somewhere around 40,000 troops were sent there. Um, and... There's a mixture of troops that are sent to Korea, British troops sent to Korea. So we have regular servicemen. Uh, we have reservists who are called up from the from their previous service in the Second World War. And we have national servicemen as well. So these are young men aged between 19 and 21 mostly. Um, and uh, Korea for them is, is a real break from normal national service. Um, and they're sent um, as part of the, the force to Korea as well. There's lots of other support services as well um, in Korea, British support services. So groups like the Queen Alexandra's Royal Army Nursing Corps, the majority of whom are women, are sent to Korea as well. So it's, um, it's, it's a sizable contribution. And as well as 
ground troops. We have to remember there's a there's a naval contingent and a very small air force contingent as well, mostly sort of seconded to other national services um, as well. So as a number of, of um, air force, Royal Air Force, who get involved with the, the United States Air Force as well. On the domestic front, what was the initial reaction back in Britain to the outbreak of war? So I find this really interesting, the initial outbreak to war, um, because I think it frames quite a lot of the, the subsequent response to Korea as well. So from the sources that I've looked at, certainly, it seems like there was a real sense of panic when the war broke out. Lots of people um, in their diaries or in their sort of subsequent memoirs or in their letters to each other talk about here we go again. Uh, don't forget that the Second World War, it's only been five years since it finished. It's a really live memory. Um, and it really shapes how people respond to Korea in the initial few months. So we have as well sources from Mass Observation, which is a big social surveying organisation still active in 1950. And a lot of their source material shows people discussing, well, should I, I redig my Anderson shelter? Or will there be places again above above London um, bombing you know are we going to have a, a rerun of the blitz and aerial warfare was it was never an option and the war was was very much always going to be fought in Korea many thousands of miles away but I think it's really indicative of a post-war society you know the way people respond to Korea there's certainly for the first couple of months there is there is real fear that um, it's going to be a similar war to the war that has just passed and um, even though it becomes you know by the end of of 1950 it becomes obvious that, that that's not the case. Was the concern that Korea would trigger a kind of cold war global war? It's hard to tell really uh, mass observation is quite an interesting source here because it reveals that most ordinary people, you know, like, like you and I, um, don't necessarily have a particularly high knowledge of the emerging Cold War period or the emerging um, idea of a Cold War. There's lots of talk about how Russia was once our ally and is less so now. And there's, you know, there, there's awareness of this tension. Um, but not everybody necessarily understands that this might be um, the vector for a, for a wider war. Uh, the exception, I suppose, to that is when um, Douglas MacArthur starts talking about nuclear weaponry. People do understand the significance of that. And they, um, they're worried. They're worried about the use of it. Some people say, you you know, they support MacArthur and think that he's a good a good leader of the United Nations force. But other people are worried um, and they've seen the effects of, of nuclear war and gradually start to realise that, you know, that would escalate um, to, to include the whole world. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that most of the key action in the war takes place in the first year or so. So what are the most important events on the front line at this time? So, yes, the first year of the war is characterised by a huge amount of movement up and down the peninsula. When North Korea first invades, they're relatively successful. And the UN force, when, when it comes to the aid of South Korea, is actually pushed back to um, the southeast corner of, of Korea, um, area now of, of Busan. And um, it's not until the, the Incheon landings, um, led by MacArthur, that the UN forces are able to reverse some of those um, North Korean Korean advances. And another key moment for the for the front line is in October 1950, 
when the Chinese um, come to the aid of North Korea. And China is, you know, it's 1949 was when the communist revolution took place in China. China is, is concerned about its foreign policy, but it's also looking to consolidate some of its domestic policy. And they come to the aid of, of North Korea. And that means that by early 1951, Britain and UN forces are facing a really formidable enemy. And perhaps one of the most famous British actions of the war is the Battle of the Imjin River in April 1951, where soldiers of the Gloucestershire Regiment, but also other regiments, um, face down a, a huge Chinese force from the 22nd of April to the 25th of April. And the, the force is about 10,000 Chinese soldiers at this hill, Hill 235, uh, near the Imjin River in Korea. And there are very high uh, casualty rates. Only 40 men manage to get to safety. The rest are either killed, wounded or taken taken captive. So that's a major um, event for the you know the fighting and the front line in Korea. There are other actions after 1951, but they are they're much uh, fewer. Uh, by the second half of 1951, fighting is starting to settle down around the dividing line between the Koreas loosely and Actually, the, the type of warfare, it, some historians argue, has much more in common with the First World War uh, by the second half of, of the Korean War. There's a lot of patrolling, there's a lot of trenches, there's a lot of waiting and watching uh, the enemy who are not far away from you. So you can split the Korean War in many ways into two sort of types of um, fighting and of action. But of course, there is fighting still in, in um, even in 1953. Britain is, is involved in the, the Third Battle of the Hook, um, which again is, is another well-known and, and quite ferocious battle that Britain were involved in. How closely were people in Britain following the action in Korea, particularly in the, in the early months of the war? So in the early months of the war, uh, the Korean War is very prominent in the in the British headlines and the British press. It's followed closely. And when we look at material like mass observation, like people's personal diaries and letters, we see a lot of discussion about the war in Korea. Uh, the BBC also runs some special programmes in 1950 to talk about the history of Korea, but also to talk about where Korea is don't forget that Britain doesn't have very strong historical links with the Korean peninsula, unlike other areas of East Asia that British people know a great deal more about, um, largely through imperialism um, and colonialism. But Korea is, is to some extent much, much less known. So there is a, there is a high interest in Korea, certainly uh, during 1950. And during 1951, even the, the Battle of the Imjin River, in particular, does uh, attract a lot of a lot of interest. After 1951, Korea does slip off the front pages, um, apart from particular moments of controversy or action, particularly when um, some anti-war uh, opponents start expressing their views, and that brings Korea back onto the front pages. So that's really interesting what you, what you just said about anti-war protesters. How extensive in Britain was opposition to the war and, and how did that play out? So 
Opposition to the Korean War was fairly small scale. Uh, We shouldn't over-exaggerate it. It pales in comparison to later opposition to the Vietnam War and to the the anti-nuclear campaigns, which take off in the late 1950s. So the first Aldermaston March is in 1958 of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, um, and that gains traction during the 1960s. However, we could, and I would argue we should, see the Korean War as a very early example of some of this anti-Cold War opposition. Because some of the key people that are later involved in a campaign for nuclear disarmament are starting to articulate some of their anti-war ideas during the Korean War. So the historian E.P. Thompson, very well-known social historian, very active in the in the anti-nuclear movement, he and other people start to write about the new Cold War during the Korean War. And in particular, there are a number of strands to the, the opposition to the Korean War. One is the South Korean allies, so the Republic of Korea led by Syngman Rhee. There's a lot of criticism of both the conduct of Syngman Rhee, but also the conduct of the Republic of Korea troops. And um, a very famous case of a journalist, James Cameron, and his photographer, Photographer Bert Hardy, who work for a publication called Picture Post, and they try and publish some images of brutality and murder by Republic of Korea troops um, that they've reputedly seen. And they're sacked from a Picture Post for trying to publish these, these images, which are later published by another, another publication. And there are other people as well who, who point out the Republic of Korea's harsh response to the war. But other people as well point that the American conduct um, is not what it should be as well. So a number of people get caught up in in critiquing American germ warfare, as they call it. So there is a a claim made by the Chinese that American planes have been dropping diseased rodents on their land in in, um, China, um, in the areas of China that border North Korea, and that that um, has led to disease and this is this is a new type of warfare they accuse the Americans of doing this germ warfare, and a number of British people get caught up in this um, debate. So a very well known cleric at the time, Hewlett Johnson, known as the Red Dean of Canterbury in many of the papers, and a very leading figure in the New Town movement, uh, Dr Monica Felton, who was chair of the Stevenage Development Corporation. She again supports these claims about germ warfare, but particularly she supports claims about American brutality more broadly. So there are a number of people who are expressing anti-American as well as anti-South Korean um, views in Britain. Do we know, was, was there any basis to these claims about germ warfare? So it's interesting, some historians um, have, have taken this case of germ warfare and looked at it. And by a, a large majority, most of them say that, you know, it was a, a product of Chinese propaganda. It didn't necessarily have any basis in, uh, in fact, and that there was no concerted germ warfare. However, I find it quite interesting. I'm a, I'm a social historian and a cultural historian. So I find it interesting when people do believe in these things, even if there isn't necessarily um, a basis of fact. Um, And Hewlett Johnson in particular is a really interesting person to to look at. He was a very committed, very principled man, um, had been involved in a lot of pacifist organisations, had attracted a great deal of criticism, both before the Korean War and afterwards, for his um, commitment to some of these causes. And 
even though the historical record now shows that, you know, it is highly likely that uh, the germ warfare campaign was a fabrication. I find it quite interesting and actually quite moving that uh, this person, you know, supported this and he he worked really hard to try and uh, promote this within Britain, even though it turns out that it was false. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. When people come back, when service personnel come back from Korea, a lot of them say that they feel forgotten already. And one newspaper in 1953 said that the English cricket team's victory in the Ashes that year had occasioned much more enthusiasm and interest than the end of the Korean War. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. On the other side of the conflict, how did the war shape British people's views of the Chinese and North Korea? So to understand views of of China and North Korea, the sources that are perhaps most detailed are those produced by soldiers themselves. And there's various language that is used to describe Chinese forces. And it's almost overwhelmingly the language describes huge numbers of people. So they use words like waves or hordes. They imply that China has so many people in the Chinese People's Volunteers that they're very flagrant with, with life and they, they use the numbers of, of, um, of service personnel to sort of overwhelm UN positions. So that language is is a common way that British people come to describe um, the Chinese forces in Korea and Korean forces as well, to some extent. It's hard to gauge more broadly what the cultural response to China and to North Korea is after the war, particularly because the Korean War does become forgotten quite quickly. And China is a, I don't know, it's an outlier to some of the Cold War politics that that British people are more aware of. So um, for British people, a lot of the Cold War is concentrated in Europe. When the Berlin Wall goes up in 1961, Berlin and Germany is seen as the front line of the Cold War. And I think a lot of people overlook China as, as a communist power as well. So it's, it's, hard, it's a hard one for me to gauge, I think, Rob. So you've mentioned a couple of times this idea of the Forgotten War. And then you also said that the first few months of the war, people in Britain were following it quite closely. So what changed to mean that people in Britain lost interest in what was happening in this conflict? It's really interesting because, yes, as you say, the first few months of the war, there was incredibly heightened interest in in Korea um, and in, in what was going on there, in the troops that were being sent. I think some of it comes back to the the change in the nature of warfare so from 1951 and from 1951 peace negotiations begin but they falter um, they seem to drag on and so there is a degree of of people's interest moves on after this it's hard to maintain interest in peace negotiations that aren't going particularly well and the war itself quietens down albeit with moments of of real heightened interest um, that that do go back onto the front page. 
And I think that feeds in as well to the sort of ambiguous war aims um, in Korea. It's unclear what fighting for the British way of life involves. So to some extent, again, it's it's a hard thing for, for people to maintain interest in. It's also, um, a lot of historians, myself included, would argue that the shadow of the Second World War really frames how Korea is remembered and then forgotten. After those initial months, um, when people are worried about war resuming in the way that they, they knew it in the Second World War, it becomes very quickly apparent that that's not what this war is. This is not that type of war. So the monumental Second World War still retains the sort of prominent position in, in British national life. And as well, Britain is is a post-war country as well. That's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in Korea and the Korean War is that it's a collision of the post-war and the Cold War. So British people are also beginning to go back to their normal lives. You know, there's a huge amount of reconstruction taking place. There's lots of debate about what should be done. This is the time of of Clement Attlee's Labour government. They're, they're bringing in a huge amount of reform um, and and change. And even when Churchill wins the election in 1951, again, the, the domestic agenda is very strong and, and very important. So, there's a degree to which Korea is is um, is secondary to some of those developments, and as well, it has a, a rather unsatisfactory end in in 1953. A ceasefire is signed, but no formal treaty is ever signed, which leads a lot of people to say that the Korean War is still going on today. And that ambiguous ending, that rather unsatisfactory ending, um, affects how people remember the war as well. Um, and means that in 1953, when people come back, when service personnel come back from Korea, a lot of them say that they feel forgotten already. And one newspaper in 1953 said that the English cricket team's victory in the ashes that year um, had occasioned much more enthusiasm and interest than the end of the Korean War. The service personnel, um, so they obviously came back after 53, but were any of their stories or experiences already percolating into Britain while the war was still happening? So a lot of service personnel would have written letters back to their families um, and friends, um, and that's a lot of the material that's gone into, into my work on Korea has used that personal life writing material. So service personnel's stories are being shared with their family back home. But of course, as with any war, people self-censor. People write what they think is interesting or they write what they think, you know, people will want to read back home. And some service personnel express the opinion in 1953, but some earlier, that people don't want to know in Britain. People people are much more interested in, in getting on with their, their civilian lives. And when some service personnel come back in 1953... Don't forget that some of them are very young. Um, they're very young to be a veteran. You know, they might be 21. And there's an expectation that they, they get back on, they, they get back into their civilian jobs and civilian lives. So there isn't really a, a cultural space for them to reflect on, on having fought in career as well, which again perhaps feeds into its status as, as a forgotten war. Now, the Second World War clearly has a huge cultural impact on Britain and continues to do so. What's the cultural impact of the Korean War? I know that's kind of an area that you specialise in. It's really interesting. I find it really interesting, actually, because in the 1950s, there is some literary, some film interest in Korea, but it's very short-lived. 
And the only British film um, that is is made about Korea is a film called A Hill in Korea, which comes out in 1956. It's based on a novel. And interestingly, it stars Michael Caine in his first film credit. And it's his first film credit because he's been serving in Korea as a national serviceman. So he comes back um, to from national service in Korea to star in this film on Korea. Um, and his autobiography is really interesting because he talks about how he tried to advise um, on uh, on some of the, the filming aspects. So there are some films um, and some novels. Um, so John Holland's The Dying, The Dead and The Damned. So there is there is some interest um, in, in Korea. But some veterans say, well, we never had our Sebastian Fawkes or Louis de Bernier. There's no one writing um, fiction about our war uh, in the same way that the Second World War and the First World War have become huge topics um, of fiction for subsequent generations. So that was felt as a real gap by, by some service personnel. The exception, I would say, around this sort of general amnesia around the Korean War is a very controversial term which emerges during the Korean War and which has a huge afterlife. And that term is brainwashing. Brainwashing is first used in English in 1950, the year when the Korean War broke out, uh, by American writer Edward Hunter. And it's based on um, a Chinese concept which had been circulating before 1950. And he uses this term brainwashing to describe Chinese mind control practices and methods, which he argues were being used in Chinese-run prisoner of war camps, in which many UN, US um, and British prisoners of war ended up. And whilst the scientific community were very sceptical of the term brainwashing, uh, there was only a few years where it was really discussed seriously. The cultural impact of that term brainwashing has been huge. So we can see it in films, Cold War classic films like The Manchurian Candidate in 1962, The Ipcris Files in 1965, um, again starring Michael Caine. And it's been used by politicians, by media. It's it's had a huge impact and it's still used today. We use it as as a shorthand to describe somebody sort of um, changing their view completely inexplicably. Uh, so as a, as, a, as a cultural product, um, brainwashing um, is probably one of the, the longest lasting impacts of the Korean War, even though very few people know that the term originated uh, in the Korean War itself. We're now getting pretty close to the 70th anniversary of the Korean War. So after a distance of um, seven decades, certainly from the start, How do you think we should remember the war now? And do you think it's important that it doesn't carry on being the Forgotten War? Yes, I think to some extent, I would say that that Korea is no longer a Forgotten War in the way that it might have been described as such in the initial aftermath of the war and potentially even into the the 1980s um, and 1990s. People are still using this term, the Forgotten War. But I think, you know, in the in the 21st century, there has, you know, a much more concerted effort to remember the war. And that's been led by organisations such as the British Korea Veterans Association. You know, they've they've lobbied for greater memorialisation. There's a new memorial on Victoria Embankment in London, which was opened in 2014. 
And the South Korean government were very involved in setting that up as well. We tend to see the, the Korean War as fairly forgotten in, in the UK. But don't forget that in South Korea, there's a huge memorial and remembrance practices around the Korean War. And they've actually been involved in lots of exchange programs. They've worked a lot with veterans organisations um, in the UK, but also in other UN nations. So... I think the 21st century has seen an increase in remembrance, certainly. You know, we even see references to the Korean War in Call the Midwife um, and, other, and other TV programmes, Mad Men. I think it's on a lot of people's radar a bit more. Um, it is hugely important to remember, not least because of its ongoing impact and um, cultural impact on both of the Koreas and a lot of the, the politics and the, the culture around the division of Korea and the two different political regimes. So I think if you're interested in international politics, you definitely need to understand the Korean War. But also if you're interested in people's responses to international politics, so the more social history that I do, um, I think it's, it's, it's hugely important. And again, I come back to what I said before, I think the Korean War for Britain certainly is a really interesting combination of Cold War and post-war. The idea that this is a, a Cold War conflict and Britain responding and, and recovering from the Second World War, you see those two themes together in very high relief in the Korean War. So I think it's hugely important to to look at from a number of angles um, and, and to remember. Okay, brilliant. I think I've been through all my questions. Was there anything really crucial that I should have asked you about, you think? As you can tell, some of these characters I'm very interested in and quite invested in. So um, I looked up various quotes of Monica Felton's in case you wanted them. Because again, it kind of brings together the Cold War and the post-war. She has this quote um, in a book where she writes to justify her experiences and why she went to Korea. I think I muddled the waters a bit there in saying that she was part of anti-germ warfare. She wasn't really. Monica Felton's opposition was largely against American and South Korean conduct in Korea. Um, and she writes various uh, pamphlets um, and a book about why she went to Korea. And I think she really nicely summarises this mixture of post-war and cold war. So um, I should contextualise, she's the chair of the Stevenage Development Corporation. Stevenage is one of the earliest new towns to develop um, in Britain after the Second World War. So this is a, an important role. She's one of the very few women to be involved um, in this, and she's quite pioneering in terms of town planning. But her career is stymied because of her involvement and her support for North Korea. And she writes about why she, she goes on this fact-finding mission to Korea and um, causes a huge amount of controversy. And she's, she's sacked from the Stevenage Development Corporation as a result. And she tries to justify this. Um, and as I say, I think she brings together the Cold War and the post-war very nicely because she says, In 1945, Stevenage had been part of our hope for a new and better kind of world. Most of those hopes had already faded, and now the fate of Stevenage depended, I was sure, on the fate of the world. Again, I was too embarrassed to say what I felt or even to put my feelings clearly into words. So she saw her trip to Korea as linked to the future of post-war Britain um, and to, to Stevenage. So I really like that quote. So I wanted to get that across. That was Dr. Grace Huxford. Her book, The Korean War in Britain, Citizenship, Selfhood and Forgetting, is out now published by Manchester University Press. You can read her article on the Korean War 
in the July issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes articles on the Field of the Cloth of Gold, Lancaster Bombers in World War II, Charles Dickens, Henry III and a whole lot more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Pateman. We'll be back on Friday when Nicola Cornick will be discussing the life of the Tudor noblewoman, Amy Robesart. <laughs>